Hello, this is Allison Carter with Elder Home Buyers, and I'm so excited to welcome Michael Gill today on our episode. He's with Texas Senior Living Locators, and he uh, started the company in 2012. He is an elder transition advisor, and he works with families who need to find senior housing. I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell a little more about his company. Thank you, Allison. Yes, my name is Michael Gill. The name of my company is Texas Senior Living Locators. Uh, I am only located, though, in the Hayes, Travis, and Williamson counties, which is basically the greater Austin area. I've been doing this for about 10 years, and it's a free service because I'm paid a commission by wherever somebody ends up moving into. So like from that perspective, I'm sort of like an apartment hunting service, but it's really much more health care and money and geographic location. Because there are so many different options and most people, even though they're in their 50s and they're adults and they've gone through so many life experiences, the senior living industry is a completely new life experience for everybody. So that's why I have a consulting firm. Yes, it's perfect because most people, when they start the process, do not really know anything about it and it can be quite overwhelming. So uh, let's talk about a few statistics. Um, back in two. 2014, we talk about skilled nursing, assisted living, memory care, and independent living in the area of Travis County and Williamson County, just, you know, the surrounding area, there were probably 195 um, facilities. So how has that changed during that time period from 2014 to um, now? Well, it's changed in a couple of ways. There's been some evolution in the industry where, for example, around the 2014 to 2017 timeframe, a lot more standalone uh, memory cares were being built. Tip Traditionally, most of the memory care had been attached to an assisted living. And so the ones that are uh, standalone are good because they only specialize in memory care. More recently, we've been having more uh, uh, communities built that have independent living, assisted living, and memory care three levels of care in the same community, which is nice because you can move in at a lower level of care and then evolve all the way through life. Um, the pandemic slowed things down a little bit because I guess financing during the pandemic got a little bit weird. And so we didn't have as much uh, building then. But generally in Austin, we have somewhere between 10 and maybe even 20 new builds a year in the three county area, which wow. is a lot. That is a lot. Now, some of those are smaller places. Some of those are bigger places. And but it's uh, it's been a very fast growing segment of uh, uh, the housing industry. Well, there are um, with the growing population of the boomers, like more people are going to be going into independent living and senior living communities. So this is a big area and um, more that our listeners are going to want to know about. So we're going to break down all the type of facilities, kind of the cost, you know, expectations, because it can be overwhelming. And so we're so glad you're here um, to share your expertise. Um, so let's focus first on um hospitals. So your own mother had uh, fallen and broken her hip. She had to go into the hospital. You know, this happens a lot with seniors. They're at home by themselves. You know, they're just not quite as stable as they used to, and they can have a fall and um, have break a leg, a hip, you know, anything, an arm, and need more care, immediate care in the hospital. So what happens there? Well, so the hospital is generally paid for by Medicare. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a hospital, uh, you go to uh, for rehab, for inpatient rehab, either to a rehab hospital or to a skilled nursing home. 
And uh, Medicare is not doing this out of the kindness of their heart. What they're trying to do is they're trying to keep people from having to go back to the hospital again because readmissions are very expensive. Yeah. So when they send you to inpatient rehab, they're trying to get you stronger so that you don't have another fall and so that uh, you can stay safely at home. So um, they keep you a short amount of time because of the cost of, um, at a hospital. So how many days on in general do they usually keep you at the hospital so um, it depends on what's going like on, that. of course. Uh, for example, a stroke, they may keep you a much longer time than a broken hip or pneumonia. Uh, but I'll tell you these days that if you have a broken hip, you might only stay in the hospital for three nights before they move you on. Uh, if you have a stroke, though, strokes take a much longer time, and that's just sort of a different animal. And, of course, between COVID and other infections, uh, that just sort of depends on the course of the progression. Um, but they, the general concept is they want to move you to the uh, lowest level where the care can be adequately given. But if you think about it, even if somebody is not receiving any help or any much care in the hospital, they're still paying probably $5,000 a night in the hospital or more. Wow, that's high. That really is. And if they move you to a skilled nursing, it's probably only about $600 a night. And it's maybe $1,500 a night in a rehab hospital, which is an, an inpatient rehab stay also. So they want to move you out as quick as they can. Shoot, as I'm sure you've seen, there are some uh, surgeries that we thought you should have been in the hospital for, you know, a week that they're now just doing as an inpatient surgery. Yeah, they go quickly. They get you in and out. So let's move on to long-term care. You've had a hospital stay. You know, they did a hip replacement and you're going for rehab in a long-term care facility. We used to think as long-term care facilities just, oh, this is a nursing home. You know, this is the one place that everybody goes, but it's the dynamics have really changed there. They um, have, you know, a lot of times a wing that is focused on rehab patients, Medicare patients, as soon as they come out of the hospital to do their rehab there. You know, how does that work? Well, so when you come out of a hospital, you have a choice of going to a rehab hospital, which is a hospital that'll make you work three hours a day of rehab, which a lot of seniors can't quite do that much. Yeah. Now, those are always nicer hospitals, but they'll keep you about half the amount of time. Usually when you're coming out of a hospital, a skilled nursing will keep you for about three weeks. Uh, the average is uh, actually higher, but just generally three weeks is what you can count on which is good because that's uh, the, you only get 20 days in a rehab uh, before you have to start paying a copay. Yeah. The, the, the pay is full for 20 days. And then after that it's 20%. Uh, no, it's a daily rate of about $190 a oh, day. Okay. 190 now. Okay. I see. So then they can focus their rehab there to try to get home from the rehab in the long-term care. Exactly. And of course, everybody wants to go back home. And in many, most cases they probably do. But if you're blessed to live long enough and you become fragile enough, you, can, uh, it, you cannot safely go home. And that's the only reason why I don't want people to go home is if they're not safe. If they can go home, God bless them. Let's uh, make that happen if we can, because often staying at home is a little bit cheaper than senior care. But we have to be careful because home can be a gilded cage as well. Yeah. It's easy to isolate and uh, not be as healthy at home compared to in a community where they have more consistency of caregiving and of food and meals and medication management and things. So there's always a trade-off. Yeah. So what type of things um, would a patient or a person need a skilled nursing facility compared to assisted living? Why, how would they choose the difference? Like what type of 
um, services do they offer in the skilled nursing facilities maybe that they don't insist in living? The best way to think about that is that a skilled nursing facility is for um, medical necessity, whereas assisted living is for custodial care. Okay. okay, That's one way to think about it. A second way to think about it is the payer source. Because a skilled nursing facility, about 58% of their residents are there on Medicaid, and maybe another 20% are there on Medicare. So just under 80% are in a, a nursing home because the government is paying. Okay. Uh, the other 20 to 25% are private pay. In assisted living, 100%, in, at least in the Austin area, 100% are private pay. And that's true for memory care and independent living as well. No government program pays for long-term care in Texas uh, for uh, assisted living. So before we move on to assisted living, so what kind of things are medical necessity in the in the nursing home? Like tracheotomies or? Very good. So tracheotomies, ventilators, feeding tubes, IV drips, and bed-bound patients are the five categories of the, uh, that generally are reserved for skilled nursing. Okay, yeah, so because they can't take care of those really in the assisted living. But then um, medical, I mean, financial necessity. Uh, So when a patient is, you know, they've run out of money or they've spent down. uh, So do you know anything about the Medicaid, like what they would need to? So for an individual in general, a person has to have no more than about $2,500 of income and no more than $2,000 of assets. Okay. And that's the financial requalification. There also has to be medical qualifications, uh, and so somebody has to be sick enough. In general, I would bet that 90% or so of the patients that are on Medicaid are there because of dementia. Okay. But I have seen people in wheelchairs with multiple sclerosis that aren't deemed sick enough to be qualified for Medicaid. So it's not as clear as we'd like it to be. Hmm. So if we move on to assisted living, if maybe... They're not really ready for that skilled nursing. They don't have the medical necessity or they're not at the financial um, need quite yet. So what, um, when should a person look for assisted living and what different types of assisted living are there? Well, so assisted living is there for, as we said, custodial care. Mm -hmm. What that means, they're non-skilled services. Uh, There's a term in the industry, uh, activities of daily living. Okay. Uh, the activities of daily living are dressing, bathing, eating. Eating means getting the food from your plate to your mouth, not food preparation. So dressing, bathing, eating, transferring. So transferring is getting out of your chair or off your bed to your walker. Um, and so transferring is the fourth one. Fifth would be toileting. And that means getting to the toilet in time so that you don't have an accident, Getting uh, using uh, the toilet paper, cleaning yourself, being able to pull up your pants after you're on the toilet. Those are toileting issues. Okay. That's the fifth activity, and that's different from the sixth activity, which is incontinence, which is just where, oh, my goodness, look at that. I'm wet. I didn't know I had to go to the bathroom. So incontinence and toileting are sort of two different things, which is a little bit uh, uh, non-intu- confusing, yeah. not intuitive. Yeah. And then the seventh activity of daily living, which is not considered an official one for either veterans benefits or long-term care insurance, but is uh, medication management. And so if you notice, all of these things are not skilled services. You don't need a nurse. You don't need particular uh, extra training. It's mostly common sense. Whereas when you're in a skilled nursing home, ventilators and tracheotomies, you need a medical professional who's been trained to help with those type of things. Yeah, of course. 
And then your next question was, what are the different types of assisted living? Yes. And basically, there's two types of assisted living. Uh, well, a little bit more, but there's assisted living, which is where it's a, a apartment building surrounding a centralized dining room with a meal plan, mm-hmm. with bridge and bingo and transportation services. But in assisted living, they also have caregivers that the assisted living hires. And the other type of assisted living is uh, memory care. And memory care is an assisted living license with an additional certification. And that additional certification requires you to have a lock on the front door, which is not is just for security. It's just be keep, to keep people safe. It's not to for you know, lock so them down. They don't wander out into the street and things exactly. like that. Because a lot of times they're up at night and... Other people are sleeping and you may not see them go out the door and that'd be so dangerous. So dangerous. Yeah. And then the other thing is generally um, uh, memory care has about twice as many caregivers as in assisted living because, of course, it's a much needier population. So maybe their ratio of caregivers is one to eight in memory care. How many would you expect in just an assisted living? Maybe one to 14. And, and skilled nursing? Uh, 1 to 16 or at night, maybe even 1 to 25. And how? what would you expect in the cost difference in uh, memory care assisted living and regular assisted living? It's always a little bit complicated because they have different pricing schemes. In assisted living, there's a base price plus extra for level of care. More often than not, probably about 70% of the time, memory care is all-inclusive. Oh, okay. So memory care tends to be, you know, 50% more expensive, but when you add the extra levels of care, it becomes a little bit more difficult to figure it out. Because memory care offers more services, it is more expensive, but sometimes it can be even cheaper because there's so many extra services that somebody may need in assisted living. But generally, I'd say uh, memory care runs 20 to 30% more expensive than assisted living on average. And then assisted living... How do they break down some of the additional costs? So they have a base cost and then they add on. So if they need their medications given or they need changing or assistance with different things, is that what are some of the things that you've noticed? That's exactly the way it goes. And generally, the extra cost can range from zero to about $2,000 uh, generally. Every place has a different scheme. Some places have, you know, levels one through five and every level is an additional, you know, 350 or $400. Other places uh, charge by the task. So medication management might be an extra five or $600. Uh, two showers a week might be $120, whereas three do- uh, showers a week might be $180. Escort assistance to and from the dining room might be $5 each way. Uh, there's all sorts of different things that come on into it. And there's always exceptions too. Things like nebulizers and catheters, you know, if they even offer those services, maybe extra above and beyond the general $2,000 maximum that a lot of places have. So there's a, another niche that's come in kind of an assisted living. I think this is what it's under. And they're smaller facilities, residential assisted living. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I've seen that become a little more popular in those kind of pop up around the city. Residential care homes, personal care homes, uh, residential assisted living, those are the names that are given to a a community that's located in a single-family detached residence in a normal neighborhood. And so it might have been a a four-bedroom, three-bathroom house originally with a two-car garage. And they may have gone ahead and uh, turned the garage into two bedrooms. And they may have taken the formal dining room and the formal living room and made those into bedrooms. So now all of a sudden you have seven or eight uh, bedrooms that can take maybe 10 or 12 people. 
And uh, in those cases, those are really good uh, assisted livings for people that are particularly fragile, need a lot of eyes on them all the time. The only downside of the personal care homes is that, that there's not as much intellectual stimulation because they don't generally have a dedicated activities director. Mm -hmm. And so there's an awful lot of TV watching uh, going on. Probably about 80% of the people in these places have memory problems. Uh, but, you know, they're really good for somebody who is fragile, can barely get around even with a walker, needs a lot of eyes on them because they may forget that they can't get up and they may be a big fall risk for some sort of reason. So they're very personable, very caring, very nurturing places um, that fill a very important niche uh, in the market. Okay, so we've covered skilled nursing, um, assisted living, hospitals. Um, we've talked a little bit about memory care, what kind of things you can find as far as um, the ratio and some of the services that it's offers. Um, can you tell us about independent living communities and how that differs from um, the assisted living? So independent living is sort of a misnomer. It's uh, called independent living in contrast to assisted living. So they're basically both assisted living and independent living are apartments surrounding a centralized dining room with a meal plan and with activities like bridge and bingo and with some transportation. Independent living, though, is independent of caregivers and it's independent of regulations. So the building is not allowed to hire caregivers to help anybody. So really people go there as sort of a bridge between assisted living and living at home because they don't want to have home maintenance. They don't want to have to uh, make their own uh, uh, meals and they want the community and friendships that um, uh, may be available at a place that has people who generally average you know, 75 to 85 years old. And so they're a very nice bridge. Now, the thing that a lot of people don't understand, though, is that even though they can't help with activities of daily living, what they generally do in independent living is they hire, they rent an office to an outside caregiving agency. And that outside caregiving agency can do some of the things an assisted living can. So if somebody needs medication management or needs standby shower assistance uh, just because they're a little bit un unsafe in the bathroom. So when they do a shower, they come and uh, uh, help make sure that somebody's safe. They can do a lot of the uh, transitional type of stuff so that people don't have to go to the assisted living. They can be an independent living. And the independent living communities are uh, much cheaper and they're generally is more focused on amenities. So they're much nicer and prettier and they may have a movie theater and they may even have a pool and things like this. So it's a good bridge between uh, being at home and having to go to an assisted living. So um, when you see these different communities um, and a family doesn't want to keep moving somebody, what kind of services, you know, or how is it different when they offer like being able to age in place? You know, do they offer hospice or sitters or how can families decide if they want to keep them there for as long as possible? It's a very good question because one of the things we know is generally somebody when they move in is going to be the healthiest they're going to be for the rest of their life. Yeah, They're at a very fragile stage of life where they're, it's, you know, downhill. And so we want to plan not just for today, but we want to plan for six months down the road, two years down the road, or however long it's going to be. And we want to do it with intentionality because we don't want to have to move somebody and yank them around. Because as you know, moving is no fun at any age. Yeah, It's so disruptive to life. 
So what we try and do is we try and see, I try and see what it's going to look like over the next several years. And everybody's, of course, different. But if they have something that's known like COPD or some memory issues, we know it's going to be you know, a much faster downward trend. And so we try and anticipate those things quicker. The newer communities that have independent living, assisted living and memory care are really nice for uh, just moving to one building and not having to worry about things for you know, a, a very extended period of time. They're also good for when you have a couple. If you have a husband who's in worse shape than the wife, they can still be in the same building, get different levels of care, but still be there to visit back and forth and maintain that coupleship, which is really important. That's called a CCRC? That's called a CCRC, but some of the newer communities that uh, have assisted living and independent living and memory care in the same are that way. CCRC would also include a fourth level of care, which is a skilled nursing on the same campus. Okay. Here in Austin, we only have five CCRCs, three of which are buy-in communities with a very large upfront fee. And then there's two other ones that are nonprofits. Uh, that, and those ones all have independent living, assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing on the same campus. Um, but there are a lot of other ones as well that have independent living, assisted living, and memory care on the same campus. So they don't have skilled nursing. They don't. They're not technically CCRCs, but they're similar in this general in the sense model. in the model. So, and my question about the CCRCs: you pay an upfront fee depending on the facility. Say it's two hundred thousand dollars. Do they have a monthly fee that comes out of that, or um, is that all you pay? For the rest of their lives. How does that work? It's kind of confusing for when people are thinking about something like that. The financial model of a CCRC is not intuitive. So generally, uh, for a one-bedroom apartment in Austin at the three CCRCs, and those names are Carencia, Westminster, and Longhorn Village, you'd be about $400,000 for a one-bedroom apartment, and then you might pay up to a, a million two if you actually had a cottage. Even after that, you still have maybe a $3,500 a month payment. But that $3,500 a month is actually about 60% of what it would be if it were market rate. So then with that big down payment, you actually get 90% of that back when you move out or die. And so what they're doing is they're using that big down payment to pay off their mortgage and they're passing the savings on to you with a lower monthly fee. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of confusing when you think of it can be intimidating paying that large amount up front, what happens with it or how that's going to work. Um, but that is a great model to think that they get to stay in the same place and they're, you know, surrounded by some of the same people continuing their their care that way. Uh, so can you tell me about your process with families? You've been doing this for quite a while now. You've worked with lots of families to find the right home. Um, when somebody comes to you you know, how does your process work? Well, the process generally works. Somebody calls and we usually have about a 45 minute to an hour long conversation doing first part is discovery where we try and make sure we understand what the issues are going on for the, the loved one that we're talking about. And when I say this, probably 90% of the time I'm dealing with the adult children of the senior, not the senior themselves. And then the next thing that we end up doing is once we both kind of feel like we have an idea of where the senior is, we start talk. I start the education phase where we're talking about, um, you know, what's available out there, what the differences are, some of the th what we've just talked about. What's the difference between assisted living and memory care? When should we go to one versus the other? What are sort of the criteria we want to think about? 
Now, it's always the family's decision as to how they do the things. I get to guide people. I don't get a vote. But uh, what we try and do is make sure they understand what's available. So part of the process is just to eliminate things. So obviously, we try and figure out, number one, geography. There's no reason to be in South Austin uh, when you uh, all the families in North Austin. Yeah. So we want to avoid traffic. The second thing that we try and figure out is how much money are we talking about? And, you know, we then we eliminate the places that aren't going to make sense. And then we're talking about the care needs. And from that, we're winnowing, you know, maybe the 175 different choices for assisted living, memory care and independent living down to maybe a dozen. And at that point, we start talking about the different advantages of the different places. And then uh, when somebody says, oh, personal care home sounds good or a large place sounds good, or maybe we'll start here and evolve and take the risk. We then folk hone in on maybe three places, and then I put them in my car and we go visit the places together. So what is the number one piece of advice you would give a family starting this process? Number one is do not be intimidated by the process. Uh, it's very manageable. Uh, number two, don't try and wait too long. It's always better to go too early than too late. Very few people say, oh, I wish I'd waited longer to move to senior living. Yeah. They usually try and stick things out and uh, power through things, and uh, it's not always beneficial. But it is a very personal decision, and the family gets to make it with the information. And I'm always delighted to plant a seed. And by that, I mean, if they don't move for six months or a year or two years, whatever works for them, having the information is empowering. And it's funny, a lot of times I'll talk to a, a wife, say, who has a, a husband with dementia and they're ready to move. And after we've gone out and uh, looked at places, their anxiety level goes down so much. They say, you know what? I feel so much better about things. I can now handle this for much another uh, you know, three or six months, no problem, because now I know where we're going and I don't have this other anxiety to worry about. That's a great advice. So we're so grateful for having you today. And I want you to share your website and phone number with our audience so they know um, the number one resource when they need to start, you know, filtering through, like know the all since you have so many connections, know all the facilities that are available to them and just have a guide so that it's not so overwhelming. Well, my name is Michael Gill. The name of my company is Texas Senior Living Locators. And as you would expect, my website is texasseniorlivinglocators.com. And we, uh, I have some uh, uh, videos on there that explain a lot of bad things too as well. And if somebody needs other resources, I'm happy to uh, give them resources for things like hospice or veterans affairs uh, benefits or uh, Medicaid benefits as well. So whatever, all things senior, I'm happy to be a resource however I can. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Allison. This is wonderful. This is Elder Home Buyers, and we appreciate having Michael Gill here today. And um, any information that you're looking for on finding your senior home, you can contact him or contact us, and we'll be happy to show you the way.